The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 9 this morning. The word of the Lord. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading through verse 20 this morning. The word of our God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. Which word? Every word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. Now, one of the important skills we need to learn in life is what to focus on. Uh, Your time is finite. You cannot focus on everything. And therefore, it's not only okay, it's wise in many situations, to just get the general gist of something, not nail down all the details, particularly over those things that really aren't going to make that much of a difference in your life. But sadly, even many Christians imagine that that's what God wants us to do with his word. Just just get the big gist of it. 
kind of the big picture. You know, and love. We'll say love a lot, and we'll feel good because we got the big picture. We're majoring on the majors rather than on the minors. And doesn't Jesus, after all, criticize the uh, scribes and the Pharisees for tithing their mint and their dill, you know, out of their herb garden. They're, they're paying attention to all these little details in the law while missing the weightier matters of mercy and justice. Well, yes, Jesus does, in fact, criticize the Pharisees of that and the scribes, and we're going to come to that, Lord willing, in several months. But I want to remind you that the Lord does not, even in those very minor matters of the law, say, no big deal. Rather, he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. In fact, in this morning's passage, Jesus says something that should terrify, I use that word intentionally, should terrify many pastors and other Bible teachers if they would only take the word of God at face value and take what Jesus is saying seriously. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, none of us wants to be called least, particularly least in the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus plainly tells us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. And whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The plain truth of the matter is this. Jesus Christ loves the law of God. And Jesus Christ wants you as his followers to love the law of God. Which means you meditate upon it, you trust it, you teach it to other people, and you put it into practice. This morning, we're going to look at this portion of God's word under four main headings. First, why did Jesus come? Second, the abiding authority and value of the Old Testament for Christians. Third, the necessity of teaching, trusting, and obeying the whole counsel of God. And fourth, the necessity of pursuing personal righteousness in the Christian life. Uh, that's an awful lot, so let me give you those four points again so you have sort of a roadmap of where we're going this morning. First, why did Jesus come? Second, the abiding authority and value of the Old Testament for Christians. Third, the necessity of teaching, trusting, and obeying the whole counsel of God. And fourth, the necessity of pursuing personal righteousness in the Christian life. We begin with why Jesus came. Look at verse 17 again with me. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus is telling us two things about how we ought to relate to the Old Testament, which he's referring to here as the Law and the Prophets. Uh, that expression, the Law and the Prophets, is a very common way of referring to the totality of the Scriptures, but of course in this time, it's the Old Testament. 
Jesus is telling us how we as Christians ought to relate to the Old Testament. First, Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Second, Jesus did come to fulfill the Old Testament. We ought to start with the question, why would anyone imagine that Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament? I mean, it's God's word. Why would anyone think that God is somehow setting it aside now that Jesus has come? And there are three primary reasons why some people might have thought this. First of all, Jesus is reorganizing the people of God around his own person. Um, We can miss this because we're so used to it. We live 20 centuries on this side of Jesus ushering in the new covenant. We have to remember how radical it was when Jesus reorganizes the people of God around his own person. For over a thousand years, the people of God had been living uh, as a nation in a very small strip of land in the Middle East. And God has set his name in one place, Jerusalem, and in the temple. And it was to the temple that people had to come to offer sacrifices on behalf of the whole nation. In fact, the Lord wanted it to be so centralized that he ordered that there would be three pilgrimage feasts every year. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and then as we actually see, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, but the Day of Atonement is right next to it, so people would come and celebrate those things. And all the adult men were supposed to come, and many families would come too. So they're all coming to this one location, and as Jesus reorganizes the people of God around his own person, that totally changes. You no longer need to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to meet with your God. And so it's not surprising that some people would wonder what else has changed about the Old Testament. Second, Jesus spoke with radical and absolute authority. He was uprooting, and we're going to see this very clearly just starting uh, in the next passage. He was uprooting centuries of encrusted tradition that was obscuring the pure word of God. But we should realize that if you've grown up always hearing and doing the same things, Jesus getting rid of the tradition could very easily seem like he's actually changing what Moses said, because the tradition kept saying, well, according to the law of Moses, we do these things. Right? It'd be very easy to confuse Jesus getting rid of the tradition for Jesus changing the law. Now, let me try to give you an analogy. Uh, It's a little bit of a weak analogy, but I think it could still be helpful. Imagine you're living in Europe, in a Christian church, right on the brink of the Reformation. And since you were a little child, you heard in church over and over again as the Gospels were read um, that you ought to do penance because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what the Latin Vulgate reads. Do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. So you're trying to be a faithful Christian. You go to your priest. You confess your sins. He gives you penance to do. And you do it. Faithful to God's word. And then along come some people who say, actually, you don't need to do penance. What you need to do is be turned to God. It means repent. Now, as children of the Reformation, you all naturally think, oh, well, they're just correcting the mistranslation. So we can get at the pure word of God. But I want to suggest that if you've been doing that for 40 years, what you might be thinking instead is, 
These crazy radicals are trying to change the honored word of God that the church has been using for a thousand years. See, you wouldn't necessarily have made that distinction. How much more would people have had difficulty making that distinction when Jesus comes, when they have all this encrusted authoritative tradition that they've been celebrating together for centuries, and Jesus says that's wrong, and he does so simply on his own authority. You have heard it said, but I say to you. It might sound like Jesus is not simply changing tradition. He's actually saying that old stuff is set aside. We're now moving on to something new. Third, Jesus was in fact bringing in the new covenant. With the coming of the new covenant, there would be changes in the administration of the one covenant of grace. For example, it would no longer be necessary for people to keep a kosher diet. Uh, Circumcision would find its terminus in Christ being cut off on the cross, and for the people of God, it would be replaced by the sacrament of baptism. There would be real changes in the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law of the old covenant would be replaced by a simpler ceremonial law in the new I mean, just realize the whole sacrificial system, because it points forward to the coming of Christ, it is going to become no longer the way that people would celebrate God. Instead, we'd turn to the Lord's Supper, which wouldn't simply look forward to Christ's second coming, but would look back on his finished work. Perhaps a lot of that moral law and other stuff would be set aside as well. Do you see how easy it would be to imagine that the entire Old Testament was being made obsolete with the coming of our Lord. But Jesus is emphatically telling us, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, it's true that those things that pointed forward as types to Christ are like road signs, and they're no longer necessary. I mean, think about going on vacation. Maybe going to Lake Tahoe for the very first time. I've never been there, but that's kind of one of my dream vacations. I want to go to Lake Tahoe. If you're driving, and 15 miles before you get to Lake Tahoe, there's a sign that says, Lake Tahoe this way, that sign is really helpful. But when you get to Lake Tahoe for your vacation, you don't go back and spend half your vacation at the sign. You've arrived at the destination. And, of course, that's going to be true with the Old Testament signs that point forward to Christ. We go back and we study them because they cast light upon who Christ is. You meditate on the sacrificial system of, as we see it, for example, unfolded in Leviticus, and it gives us insights into what Christ has actually done for us, not only in putting away our sins, but in establishing shalom, peace with us, wholeness with God. It's very helpful, but we don't live there. We live in the new covenant when the fullness of God has come in Jesus himself. So it's true that those sorts of types have been set aside in one sense. To continue to meticulously follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws after Christ has fulfilled them is not only unfaithful to Christ, this will really help you if you get this, it is not only unfaithful to Christ, it's unfaithful to those Old Testament ceremonial laws. Because you're treating them differently than the way that God always intended them. To treat them as the reality rather than as types is to have always missed them. That would have been wrong if you did it in 200 BC, just as it's wrong if you do it today. On the other hand, and this is key, 
The Old Testament is about a lot more than types of the one who is to come. It is the revelation of God who teaches us what the Lord is like and who he is. What he expects of us. How we can live lives that are pleasing to him. It gives us, particularly in the Psalms, but sometimes in other places, words of prayer. How we can worship God aright and so on. And those things are of abiding validity and authority in the Christian life. God is telling us what our duty is, or if you want to use the language of our shorter catechism, what duty he requires of us in his moral law. Jesus is telling us quite bluntly here that with his coming, the Old Testament has not become God's word emeritus. You know, an honored thing that we no longer actually allow to teach us anything. That's what happens with professors when they become professors emeritus. The Old Testament is not God's discarded first draft, which has been replaced and corrected by the New Testament. Beloved, this is the word of God. It's the word of our God which will endure forever. As the Apostle Paul would later put it, primarily talking about the Old Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or as Jesus told the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes forth from the mouth of our God. Which word? Every word. And in case anyone doubts this, Jesus is hammering home the point. He hammers home the abiding authority and value of the Old Testament in verse 18. Please look at verse 18 with me. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In verse 17, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It should be obvious. I say it should be obvious that the word fulfill cannot mean abolish. Right? I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Tragically, a large swath of American evangelicals, including not a few Reformed evangelicals, interpret fulfill as though it actually means abolish. I hope you all see that can't possibly be what Jesus means. Jesus did not bring the moral law to an end. I should note that some of these evangelicals go so far as to say that even the Ten Commandments has been set aside, let alone some of the details of the law. Now that should be shocking to us, but it is not surprising to Jesus. Jesus anticipated that some people would want to do that with his teaching as it relates to the Old, Old Testament. And so he forcefully cuts off this misreading of verse 17 by giving us verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not my death, not my resurrection, not Pentecost, until heaven and earth pass away, which actually means forever, doesn't mean it goes away even in Christ's second coming, 
Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this by putting the word truly at the front of this saying. And we're used to Jesus saying that. But this is actually the very first time in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus begins to speak by saying, truly I say to you. He's grabbing us by the lapels and saying, don't miss this. And yet somehow, many of us have. Jesus is calling us to take his words at face value and with profound seriousness. Now, part of taking our Lord's words with profound seriousness is recognizing an apparent tension between two statements which both begin with the word until. Until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. Very fine New Testament scholar R.T. France helps us out here by holding together the force of these two until statements. France writes, The law down to its smallest details is as permanent as heaven and earth and will never lose its significance. On the contrary, all that it points forward to will in fact become a reality. Now that that reality has arrived in Jesus Christ, the jots and tittles will be seen in a new light, but they still cannot be discarded. We have a clearer understanding of the purpose of the Old Testament law, because praise God, we live on this side of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. We can see it in a new light, but it doesn't make it go away. Now, working this out in detail is going to take most of us quite a bit of time. Um, I've been working on this for 40-plus years. I'd be happy to try to help you if this is an area that you want to study. But for now, I just want you to see one central truth. The fact that some aspects of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ does not mean that the moral law of the Old Testament has in any way been set aside. After all, the moral law is a reflection of God's own character. And God's desire for your life is that you would reflect his character. And Almighty God never changes. Mark this well. Jesus is not saying that this moral law continues to abide until his death and resurrection or until Pentecost. Jesus is solemnly telling us that this moral law, in exhaustive detail, will continue to have abiding authority for his disciples until heaven and earth pass away, which is just another way of saying forever. Now, this isn't difficult to understand, but please do fix what Jesus is saying in your minds because you are going to hear, even if only tangentially, Other voices in our culture, including the church, telling you other things. So please fix not what I'm saying, but what Jesus is saying in your minds and in your hearts. Jesus is saying until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a single dot will pass from the law of God. Beloved, the first three quarters of your Bible is not God's word emeritus. It is not a discarded first draft. It is God's will for your life that you would come to know him, love him, and follow him more closely.
You may have noticed that Jesus has narrowed down a bit, that he's talking about the law alone rather than the law and the prophets. Now, the word Torah can actually refer to the whole Bible. That's instruction. But I think the reason why Jesus is narrowing down to talk about law here is because he's going to give us, after this, six examples of how there is an encrusted tradition that has crept up among the Jews where he's going to say, you have said, you have this tradition about the law, but I'm going to reveal to you what the law actually teaches about not murdering, about loving your father and mother, and so on, right? So Jesus is now focusing on the law, because that's where he's going in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In contrast to the oral traditions, you have heard it said, Jesus is going to give us searching application of what the law has always meant. Uh, You're going to hear me say that a number of times over the next several weeks, Lord willing, because I want you to realize Jesus is not saying the law used to mean something different, but I'm giving you a new understanding of it. The law always meant this, and Jesus is revealing it in all its beauty and glory as he applies it to our lives. Since Jesus did not come to abolish the law, and since the Old Testament has abiding value and authority for Christ's disciples, it follows that it is necessary for us to teach, to trust, and obey this law, to obey the whole counsel of God. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is engaging in a transparent play on words. He's saying, if you relax the least of these commandments, you will be least. Though it's interesting, he keeps the person in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I think Jesus is reminding us, we're not to go around to the church trying to root out everybody who somehow gets this wrong. This is not a call upon us to cleanse the church of people who have theological error. Rather, it's a call on us to get it right in our own lives. right? And Jesus is saying, you don't want to be least, particularly in the kingdom of heaven. That's what you'll be if you discard even the least of my commandments and don't take them seriously as my Father's word to you. But of course, Jesus wants to emphasize the other side of this as well. He's not calling us to say, yeah, I can scrape in by the skin of my teeth, you know. Uh, I don't mind being least as long as I get to go to heaven when I die. He's saying, no, if you take my word seriously, you teach it to others, and by God's grace, you seek to put it into practice in your life, rather than being called least, you will be called great. Maybe not in the eyes of the world, but great where it really matters, in the eyes of Almighty God. Please note that Jesus is not saying different strokes for different folks. He is bluntly warning us, those who actually take it in that manner of being, you know, I got the gist of the Bible, don't need to worry about all the details and so on. He's saying that's wrong. That is terribly wrong. This is not different strokes for different folks. I have a much better plan for your life that you will be like a tree planted by streams of living water that brings forth forth fruit 
in season and out of season, that your life will matter both for now and for all eternity. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Naturally, Jesus wants all of us to be focusing on the positive half of his teaching. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus wants you to do with the word of the living God. As our Lord says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't help but notice a change here. We've gone from being the least to not even getting in. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now with these words, Jesus is cutting off a temptation that frankly is very, very common in our circles. This is not a temptation about those people out there. It's a very, very common temptation in confessionally reformed circles to confuse studying God's word with putting it into practice. I mean, after all, you know, we take God's word seriously because you see how carefully we study it. The truth is, uh, given how insignificant we are in size, the contribution of small confessionally reformed churches to biblical and systematic theology is way out of proportion to our numerical insignificance. That is totally true. And Jesus is telling you this morning, that is not enough. That's only half the equation. Or as Alistair Begg likes to put it, the learning is for living. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Unless your righteousness, you put God's word into practice and it changes your life. Unless that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, beloved, I, I want to tell you that will jar the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, it would have jarred the people. Um, it would have jarred the scribes and the Pharisees, too. Uh, we have difficulty with this because we're so used to when we hear scribes, Pharisees, we go scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. We just throw that right in. Please remember who the scribes were. They were professional experts in the law of God. They were the people that studied it and taught it for a living. And the Pharisees were just a relatively small segment of the Jewish population, actually a very small segment of the Jewish population, who was conspicuously devoted to personal holiness, particularly in keeping the ceremonial law. So you got them tithing mint and rue. They were particularly devoted to keeping the Sabbath in rigorous detail. And many of the people in the crowds that were hearing Jesus teach this for the first time, they would have said, if that's the standard, I might as well give up now. I have no hope at all of having a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, don't give up. Please do keep living. Jesus is telling us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from our Father's mouth. But he's also making clear, as he will in the coming weeks, that it's not enough to have external compliance with the word of God. It has to be a heartfelt compliance. And what he's going to make clear is, is that many of the scribes and Pharisees were devoted to the externals of the law, and they were seeking their praise not from God, but from man. 
And Jesus is saying, yes, but you have to seek God's pleasure. And unless your heart is right with God, unless your desire in keeping his law is to fulfill it for God's glory out of faith, then your most apparently righteous deeds are but filthy rags, as Isaiah once put it. I do say this saying would have been absolutely jarring to the crowd because they could not yet imagine this. The first thought of nearly everyone in the crowd would have been that if this is the standard of God's righteousness, I can't do it. And I'm encouraging you, don't stop here. Keep reading. Unless the scribes and the Pharisees come to repent and follow Jesus, these scribes and Pharisees would be without hope and without God in this world. And beloved, that's true in our day too. Outward conformity to the law apart from faith in Jesus Christ is not simply worthless. It is dirty and filthy in the eyes of Almighty God. On the other hand, many modern evangelicals wrongly imagine that it's easy for us to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because we don't have to worry about the law-keeping. We're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a glorious truth, that God reckons his righteousness to you entirely as a gift. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about a righteousness that is a good fruit that comes from a good tree in your own life. Very fine Lutheran scholar Jeffrey Gibbs points out three reasons why the righteousness that Jesus is talking about refers to the righteous lives that we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. You can't simply check this box by going, I put my faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus has to change the way that you're living. Gibbs writes, first, Jesus has been speaking about doing and teaching the commandments. This refers to the disciples' obedience and good works. It's not talking about God's saving righteousness. It's talking about a righteousness that's practical in your life. Second, Jesus does not speak of God's righteousness or merely righteousness, but of your righteousness. Consequently, the righteousness here is an attribute or a product of the disciples. It is good fruit from a good tree. Third, later in the sermon, Jesus is going to say... Pay attention not to do your righteousness before men in order that it might be visible to them. The phrase there, your righteousness, is obviously something you're doing. It must mean the same thing here. So Jesus is talking here about your life. Your life must manifest a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees for you to be a member of the kingdom of heaven at all. Beloved, here is a bedrock truth. The grace of God does not nullify the law of God. Let me say that again for you. The grace of God does not nullify the law of God. Rather, the grace of God allows you to begin, yes, admittedly, partially, imperfectly, but to begin putting the law of God into practice so that you manifest practical righteousness. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And everybody says yes and amen. What's the next thing he says? He says in order for something. Does he say in order that you don't need to live transformed lives? Beloved, that is not what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. United with Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can now do something that the scribes and the Pharisees who were not following Jesus could never do. You can actually live in a way that pleases God. Not perfectly, but because it's accepted in Christ, truly. Paul says, part of what God accomplishes in Christ by sending him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin is that you can now begin to fulfill the righteousness requirement of the law in yourself by walking in the Spirit. No matter how outwardly righteous a person is, nobody can do that apart from union with Christ and apart from the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So how is our righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Let me quote Jeffrey Gibbs again. The most important thing to know about the scribes and the Pharisees is simply this. They are not Jesus' disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees do possess a certain kind of external righteousness, and they manifest it in their behavior. It is, however, a righteousness that is entirely cut off from Jesus, and so it is not true righteousness. It is not truly good works at all. To do a good work, it must be done in faith in God, according to his will, united with Jesus Christ. The outward behaviors cut off from Christ produce nothing of value before God, but simply further demerits. The psalmist asks, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, and who can stand in his holy place? The answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands refer to good deeds, Pure heart refers to you having a right attitude, a right heart toward God and toward your neighbor. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If your heart is not devoted to the Lord, then all of your outward deeds, even if you were as zealous as the Pharisees, according to Jesus, will be like filthy rags in the sight of Almighty God. Beloved, let us not lose sight of the other side of this equation. If you have been born again and given a heart that loves the Lord and which seeks his face, then Jesus is calling you to manifest that new heart by the way that you live. See, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came that you might have life and that you would have it abundantly. Consider again that beautiful picture from Psalm 1 of the man or the woman who is like that tree planted by streams of flowing water, living water, that bears beautiful fruit throughout the year, in season, out of season. Its leaf never withers, is what we're told. 
That is God's design for your life. And so we ask, who is that tree? Jesus is telling us that tree is the man or the woman who meditates God's word and puts it into practice. What part of God's word? All of it. Jesus is telling us this morning that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. May God give you a heart to desire that very thing. Amen.